Amen. Let's be seated. Just catch that last verse that he believes that if there were more sinners than there were sands on the seashore, that the atonement paid by the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to save all of them. That's very true. But yet it's also true that if there were only one sinner, he would have come to save them too. It's a, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing. It's the most tragic thing in the universe that there's grace and mercy and forgiveness available for all. But most turn their back and walk off into eternity without. Sad thing. But thank God that uh, He's still lingering to save souls. All right, we are back in 2 Timothy 3. I want to say this by way of encouragement, I hope. I want to commend all of you for uh, having the spiritual fortitude to show up and listen to a series like this one uh, on the really exceedingly awful topic of apostasy. I realize this is not warm and fuzzy material, and trust me, uh, being absorbed with this for weeks on end, boy, do I feel the blackness. But yet, I also see the ray of the sunlight of God's hope that the Bible describes this to us with such supernatural clarity. And I am so convinced that for any true believer to have any real idea what is going on around them today within Christendom, the only possible way they can make sense of it is to know passages like this and to believe them. So I, for one, despite the difficulty, thank God that He gives us the dark threads of the tapestry also. I think of the Lord lamenting, it's recorded in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, and most of you know the verse. My people are destroyed for, what? A lack of knowledge. And uh, many are the slain with reference to apostasy that have gone down that road because they had no idea what was going on. They couldn't recognize it. They didn't see it. And I certainly don't want that to be the case with anybody that sits here for any length of time. I find an encouragement in Paul's words to Timothy and really to any preacher who's going to teach the Scriptures that in continuing in sound doctrine, you save or preserve yourself and them that hear you. I take great comfort in knowing that teaching the whole counsel of God preserves lives from ruin. God's promise that that's the case. This was illustrated to me how confused the religious world is this week. Again, sometimes I get interesting emails and things showing up in the mailbox. Just this week, I got two real choice emails. Uh, one of them was somebody trying to convince me uh, using the relative positions of heaven and hell and using very complicated language. They were trying to straighten out my theology so that I would start preaching that the earth is flat. Maybe even better than that one, and this one, I didn't read the whole thing. This thing was probably 12 pages. 
But it was going into, of course, based on the dream of some lady, prophetess, that the new COVID vaccination is actually the mark of the beast and that it uses nanotechnology to alter your DNA. And if you take it, you're no longer made in the image of God and therefore you're rejected of him. I learned those things just this week. Isn't it great to be learning such choice nuggets? But you get my point. Uh, the, the world of Christendom is seriously confused. It breaks my heart to see people off on nutty tangents like that, and their goal is to convert the world to flat earthism. Never mind the gospel. Never mind photos from space either. Uh, but let's move on. I also want to again thank you for your patience last week. I know that was a very long message and a very tedious message and uh, probably frankly boring message, but it was, uh, I hope you see why it was necessary information to go through. And so we did that on purpose and I hope that was useful. Um, if you just, rem if you remember some of that, I counted as time well spent. And again, just to review quickly, many of those names, if you're going to understand apostasy and what's going on, you, you, these names you have to be familiar with. Names like Harry Emerson Fosdick, influential, one of the most influential Baptist ministers, at least part of a Baptist convention, denies the deity of Christ, and the Northern Baptist Convention utterly refuses to deal with it. Instead, he was given a platform to spread his error, and years down the road, you find him leading these ecumenical worldwide gatherings when he should have been branded a heretic years earlier. Names like Billy Graham, not a popular one to speak. Billy Graham went off the rails in the 1940s. Billy Graham sowed massive confusion in the field of evangelism. He did catastrophic damage to gospel preaching. And uh, that is so well documented that it's inarguable if somebody's willing to just look. Uh, Harold Ockengay, 1948, coins the term neo-evangelicalism, which of course claimed to be orthodox biblical Christianity minus everything negative. Okay, we're going to teach all the main doctrines of the faith. We're just not going to separate. We're not going to warn. We're not going to label and uh, you can fast forward a few decades, and the emerging church is the fruit of that departure. What you see today is largely because of that decision back then. Robert Schuller, the self-esteem specialist of Crystal Cathedral fame, of course, uh, redefines the gospel to be changing your self-esteem into a positive self-image. And once again, mainstream Christianity refuses to label him a heretic. And he becomes the forerunner that trained men like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and others to spread the church growth movement. These names are important, and they give us an idea of where a lot of this leaven was introduced. Now today, Lord willing, will not be as long, and we are going to be back, thankfully, to expositing Bible passages. So today is not a history lesson. It's we are going through Scripture, and I, I thank God we are. But just three statements by way of review what we've covered Again, apostasy is the falling away of those who claim to belong to Christ. Okay, it is not talking about the state of the world. It's the falling away of those who at least have uh, been within the sphere of Christendom, who have at least claimed some sort of allegiance to the Lord Jesus. It is one of the major signs given to the churches that this age is drawing to a close. We don't know uh, when that's going to be. 
But apostasy was already spreading in the days of the apostles, but many of the passages dealing with it are looking forward to the future. Okay, they're speaking of a major, major falling away that's coming. And the passage we just read this morning is a case in point that we'll be to in a minute. In fact, uh, Paul uh, made it evident there's coming a day when apostasy would be the majority condition among professing Christians. The majority position. And it's a progressive sign that will continue to get worse up until the rapture. So this morning we're just going to quickly examine some of the major characteristics. I know we already took kind of a panorama, a topical uh, series on that, or a topical several messages. We already took a New Testament survey just sort of quickly illustrating uh, how prolific and how widespread this topic is, but we're going to look in depth at just a few of those passages. And what we're going to do is just confine ourselves to the last letters of the two most influential apostles. So the last letters of Paul and Peter and the Lord's half-brother Jude. And basically, uh, we're going to ask this or look at this in the form of just three simple questions. Okay, question number one, as apostasy progresses... What will the lifestyle of the average professing Christian look like? Number two, what will be the average apostate Christian's attitude towards Bible teaching and Bible teachers? And question number three, what will be the characteristics of those apostate teachers? All right, so question number one here in, in 2 Timothy 3. As apostasy progresses, what is the lifestyle of the average, and again, underline mentally the word professing Christian? It's those who claim to know Jesus. Now let me say at the beginning on this, let's try to apply this to self first. In other words, a lot of what we're talking about is out there. But I would remind us all, apostasy, the spirit of this satanic age, creeps like a vine. And part of the conforming you into the image of the world is conforming you into an apostate virgin version of Christianity. So, elements of this affect God's true people everywhere, even though the major characteristics are part of fake Christendom at large. So Paul says, this know also. In other words, Timothy saying, and to you and I by proxy, from these final words of Paul, this is something you have to be aware of. Know this. Pay attention to this. That perilous times shall come. So in Paul's day, that future tense shows us this is something Paul is telescoping into the future, and Paul is saying this is going to happen. It is coming. After I'm gone, but it's coming. And he calls them perilous times. In other words, an age that would be extremely hard to bear for the real people of God. Now, what is it that makes this so hard to bear? 
It's because so much of the deterioration comes from within the ranks of professing Christendom. Paul says, here's why it's going to be perilous, Timothy, for men. What, well, what men? He's, he's talking about what would become the majority lifestyle of those who claim to be Christian. Saying, Timothy, listen to me, the day is coming when the list I'm about to give is considered normal for most of the people who consistently sit in religious buildings. I mean, think, let's say you grew up in Iran. You know, Iran is approximately 99.4% Muslim. And uh, let's say you get your hands on a Bible. And you begin to read and you come to Jesus, and then you hear about this faraway land that has, in God we trust, on their coins... And where there's 205 million Christian people. What might you expect the morality, the family life, the entertainment, the music, the dress standards, the consecration to God, the eternal mindset, what would you expect those to be in a land with 205 million Christians? Probably vastly different than what you see. Now don't get me wrong, this is the greatest nation on earth in terms of freedom. Oh, we have much to be thankful for. But I think you get my point. All right, what are men going to be like, Paul? He says men, religious men, are going to be lovers of their own selves. Religious people are going to become increasingly self-centered and narcissistic. Basically, concerned with putting self first, which is the exact opposite of what's held up in Philippians Chapter 2. Uh, maybe they want their pictures pasted on everything. There's going to be an increase of the mindset of God's people who want churches to revolve around their desires. By the way, do you know the major engine that fuels the church growth movement? It's narcissism. You tell us what kind of church you want, and we'll build it for you. Wanting relationships to be all about them, continually doctoring up social media profiles, thinking the whole world should care about their opinion and what they're doing, obsessed with their own fashion. I mean, have you noticed the explosion of the stage church? Where the lights are low and the spotlights on a few chicken legs people up front who think that they're all that in a bag of Cheetos? Who's getting the glory with that, I ask you? 
Why must all the musical albums show them? Why must every preaching conference show them? Why must everything talk about them, 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 them? Because they're lovers of their own selves. Do you know it's very possible to exalt self under the pretense of promoting Jesus? It happens all the time. There's this list of statistics that draws glory to men, and oh, we're only telling you this because we just want to give Jesus the praise. I don't mean to be unkind. I read one this week. It just, you know, how a church describes itself says a lot. This is a ministry that has a lot of good about it, but you read this list of things. This is why you should come here. We've grown from 20 to 9,000 members. We've baptized 30,000. We now have facilities totaling $70 million in value. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, so what? Does that prove fidelity to the Scriptures? Not hardly. Doesn't mean anything. We see sports stars doing this all the time. Running to the end zone. Good job, Jesus, for making me look good. Yeah. Go, Jesus. As long as I win. So he's saying religious people are going to, as a whole, become worshipers of the great God I. You know, it's interesting to ask people, why do you attend such and such church? Now, almost without exception, if it's one of these liberal apostate ones, here's what you hear. I... Love the music. I like the preacher. I feel comfortable there. I never feel condemned there. I feel like I belong. I, 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 I. Church isn't about you. <laughs> yes, we want to build lives, friends, but it's the glory of God that matters. All right, secondly, he says men are going to be covetous, lovers of money, consumed with the accumulation of possessions. They're never going to have enough. Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. And uh, Paul's saying there's going to be an explosion of religious people that say it is more blessed to receive than to give. And they're going to look at God and religion as a means to get more. Again, that's what's behind a lot of the felt needs approach. That's what's behind the so-called prosperity gospel. I thank God that He didn't give the prosperity gospel because I don't want the gospel clouded. I don't want anybody walking through these doors and saying, well, I'm coming to Berean Baptist Church because that preacher told me I'll get rich. No. But covetousness is going to explode. Religious groups thinking they're right with God because of all they possess. Look at our buildings. Look at great Babylon that I have builded. Look at our influence. Look at my suit. Look at my Learjet. And then he says they're going to be boasters. Braggarts, having to point out their accomplishments to make sure everyone notices. You know, every movement has its flaws. And one of the horrendous things, I've often thought, I, I call myself an independent fundamental Baptist because I don't know what else to call myself. 
But there's been times I wanted to separate from that label, believe me. You look back in the heyday, the IFB movement in the 70s when the biggest churches in the country were fundamental Baptist churches. And many of them were a blight on the name of Christ. We think of guys like Hiles. He would actually whip the church into a frenzy. What's the greatest church in the world? First Baptist of Hammond. Who's the greatest soul-winning preacher in the world? Brother Hiles. Who's the best preacher on earth? Brother Hiles. We're the greatest, they would chant. And the sick part is hardly any preacher had the guts to stand up and tell them they're carnal and pathetic. Well, fast forward, it's no wonder the whole thing's imploded. At least as far as influence. He says men are going to be proud, thinking of self better than others, minimizing their own faults, maximizing the faults of those around them, and uh, resistant to correction goes along with that pride. Blasphemers. I find that amazing. That's really on the list of religious people and a major characteristic. Blasphemy means more than just talking about God. The idea is abusive language, foul-mouthed, trying to sound as much like the world's speech around them as possible, speaking evil about men and about God. Do You know, there, there are actually churches in this country that pride themselves on their cussing pastors. Profanity from the pulpit. That's the new cool, haven't you heard? And of course, really, blasphemy, any speaking down, any, any verbal attempt to tear God down to man's level is blasphemous. That happens all the time, theologically. I read a whole bunch of statements last week I'm not going to repeat. Like the guy saying the God of the Old Testament is a dirty bully. And this is a guy in charge of people, lots of people in religion. Disobedient to parents. There's going to be an explosion of children in Christian families who are disobedient, disrespectful rebels. Largely because their parents don't love God enough to do what His Word actually says. they got better ideas. What was that Sigmund Freud said? Here, let me use the baby, let me use the television set as a babysitter. You want to give your child's mind to the devil when he's little? Just put him in front of the TV as a babysitter. It will ruin them before they're seven. Paul says this is going to be a major characteristic as a day when the average Christian parent has no idea how to train their children biblically. Unthankful. That means ungracious or thankless. Of course, towards God first, but basically an attitude, whatever nice thing you do for them, whatever sacrifice you make on their behalf, they deserve it. Now you better do it better and faster next time. Again, I cannot tell you how that attitude has ruined churches. So many people walk into a church meeting, flop down in the back row, and sprawl out 
all right, I'm here now, bless me. You got 30 minutes. And if you don't bless me enough like I like to be blessed, I'm going to go somewhere else. My attitude's good riddance, by the way. Unthankful. Uh, unholy. Now, that, in fact, this is a, it's got the alpha privative or the A in front of it, which negates it. It's actually one of the words for holy, pure from evil conduct with the alpha privative, the A in front of it, so it negates it. So he's saying the character of professing Christianity in the last days is going to be unholy. There'll be very little concept of the holiness and the fear of God. And holiness, by the way, is not just purity, but it carries the idea of a distinctness. There is such a vast gulf between God and everything else that God's people should automatically understand that there's a vast difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The way you talk, the way you look, the way you act, the way you spend money, the way you treat people, the way you forgive, the way you dress, what you listen to, where you go, where your focus is on eternity or on this earth. And nowadays, what's the consumption? Let me show the world how close to them I am so they'll know Jesus is a party dude like them. You know what that is? Unholiness and blasphemy. That's what that is. The idea of distinction and us actually trying to be different for the Lord's sake has all but been lost. Friends, the Lord still commands, be ye holy as I am holy. Without natural affection. There's another one of those alpha privatives in A that negates it. Take the four biblical words translated love in the Greek. One of them is storge. It's talking about natural love, the love that even a lost person will have for a child, a brother, a parent, just by being made in the image of God. And this word is ah, storge. He's saying professing Christians will be marked by a hard-hearted attitude towards natural family members, ending relationships over trifles, holding grudges, for years, despising their parents and leaving them to rot in their declining years without natural affection. Truce breakers. That means they're disloyal. You can't trust their word. You can't count on them. False accusers. Uh, that's actually the Greek word diabolos. Does that sound familiar? Diabolos. Little devils. Little satans. Accusers of the brethren. A mouth that tears people down with little regard for context or accuracy so long as the damage is done. By the way, this includes blogs. I'm not saying they're all bad, but a lot of them are diabolos. A lot of them are devoted to tearing somebody apart. Incontinent. That means without self-control. 
So there's going to be the widespread invention of a Christianity in which you can satisfy any fleshly desire that you want and remain a good standing member of that thing that calls itself a church. It'll be a day of situational ethics, of moral relativity, of Freudian blame shifting, and of course the twisting of Scripture to permit all manner of evil behavior. And predictably, what will that cause? It will cause an explosion of alcoholism, adultery, fornication, divorce, pornography, homosexuality among the Lord's professing people. Paul says they will be fierce. Savage or brutal is what that means. Willing to destroy others if it means the exaltation of self. Excessively defensive. And they may appear like a gentle little lamb leading their large ministry, but when you pin them to the wall over their evil behavior, the M16 is coming out. They will tear you to pieces. Time doesn't permit to give illustrations on a lot of this stuff, but believe me, I could. How about this one? Despisers of those that are good. Virtuous is what that means. So, in the end times, professing Christendom is going to be hostile towards virtue. Antagonistic towards true biblical Christianity. I mean, I find it fascinating that the loudest proponents of what they call love, tolerance, and unity reserve a great deal of hatred towards one kind of person. Do you know what kind of person that is? It's the one who takes the whole Bible seriously. The venom poured out on Bible-believing Christians by apostates nowadays is staggering and voluminous. It's everywhere. Anybody with a higher standard is a legalist. Anybody who dare point out their error is unloving and they become very, very angry. And Paul says they'll be traitors. Backstabbing betrayers. Who on a whim, <clears throat> they turn against those who they formerly stood with. Especially when the tide of popularity begins to turn. Friends, ministers are expendable when the right opportunity comes along. They will be heady. Right? That's an interesting word. You picture something very top-heavy. Uh, the word heady actually means falling forward. You picture this person with a 90-pound with a head, and they're constantly falling forward. That's what the word heady means. It means reckless, rash, and self-willed. It's the opposite of walking circumspectly. Now, how does that happen? How does somebody become heady and reckless in their Christian life? It's pretty easy. You don't take the time, you never learn how to rightfully apply Scripture to everyday life. And when you don't do that, you're constantly walking into pickle and landmine and tight situation over and over and over again because you refuse to listen to God. And Paul says that's going to be Christendom in the last days. They're not like the prudent man that foresees the evil and hides himself. They're like the simple man that constantly passes on 
and is punished. No discernment, gullible, tossed about like a cork in the ocean with every wind of errant doctrine. Not grounded. Amazingly enough, he also says they'll be high-minded. That, uh, that word actually means to envelop with smoke. Uh, metaphorically, it's to be so blinded by conceit and so filled up with their own self-image that no time or energy do they have to hear other opinions or especially correction seriously. And then he says, they will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. I can just hear somebody say, well, that's not me. I, I love Jesus so much. What's your attitude towards his word? Who really has the priority? Who do you think more about? Which are you willing to sacrifice more for? What are you willing to plan for? What are you willing to give for? Friends, could it be that the reason that faithful church attendance in this generation has fallen on such hard times is because men are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God? Everything else is more important. And the capstone, having a form, that's the Greek word morphosis. It means it's kind of like you're looking through the fog and here emerges this person and you can't really see them that well, but you just see an outline. That word morphosis means having an outline, a shell of piety or godliness. But denying the power, the dunamis, the, the supernatural, miraculous transformation that real Christianity actually brings into a life. So Paul says, as this church age draws to a close, the majority of those who claim to be followers of Jesus will be self-centered, conceited, disloyal, reckless, undiscerning, foul-mouthed backstabbers with culturally relevant, disobedient rebels for children, living a lifestyle of total carnality, indulging almost any lust, making a mockery of biblical holiness, blaspheming God by their behavior, and increasingly hating those that actually listen to and obey the Word of God all while strenuously maintaining and defending a profession of faith in Jesus when their daily life totally denies the supernatural change that's in, that the new birth actually brings. Have you ever seen somebody who has no clue what the gospel is but claims to be a person of faith? You ever see them challenged on that? <laughs> the Lord tells us to respect our government, and I don't want to speak disrespectfully, but you saw that at the last vice presidential debate. 
Miss Harris's faith was challenged. Remember how she responded? Oh, how dare you say, I am a person of faith. I would so love to be in the crowd and stand up and say, faith in what, Miss Harris? Because faith means nothing without the proper object. You could believe the moon's made out of Swiss cheese, and you could believe it a lot, but it's not going to do anything. So there'll be a widespread explosion of fake Christians who all claim to know Jesus while their life totally denies it. Now let me look at verse 13 before we go forward. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, apostasy most of the time is a one-way street. There have been examples where a group turned back at the edge of the cliff. I think we see that in Revelation 2 and 3, that the Lord had not given up, even on Laodicea. I'm knocking on the door. Now, if you open it and you let me in, not, not the party, Jesus, you let the real Christ in, I'll sup with you, I'll commune with you, I'll forgive you, and I'll walk with you. But... Once a denial of the plain teaching of the Bible begins to occur, once a resistance to correction takes root, once a refusal to separate from error becomes the position, it only goes one way. It might be slow, it might be quick, but the end result is very, very predictable. The religious graveyard of history is filled up with the crumbling headstones of churches, denominations, colleges, and seminaries that did not listen to the warnings. I mentioned them last week. You think of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, what do you think of? One of my good friends, one of the godliest men I know, graduated from Princeton, so I'm not speaking universal generalities here, but what do you think of? Uh, you think of guys in sweaters from rich families training to be lawyers or maybe Supreme Court justices, right? When you think of those schools, do you think of godly, serious-minded young men being taught how to preach the Word of God no matter who disagrees? Because that's what they were when they were founded. They were all theology institutions. Now the so-called preachers they put out are more emissaries of the devil than they are preachers because they've been totally infiltrated with liberalism and unbelief. Paul says evil men and seducers. That word seducers means a wizard or an imposter, a pretender. They're going to get worse and worse. They're going to keep on fooling people. And as they're seducing others, they will be fooled worse and worse themselves. And there is no bottom to that pit. I mean, we talked about the World Council of Churches last week, you remember? How in the world do you go from a vague evangelical statement and within two or three decades you're having pagan tribespeople offer fiery sacrifices to the sun and the, and the moon and the stars on stage at your council of churches? How does that happen? It happens through apostasy. 
You know, as a pastor, I'm not just responsible for the lives here right now. Do you know something? It's not enough for me that this church is standing solid two years from now. I want to do my part to see this church standing solid 40 years from now. And you want to know why I'm diligent to shut the door to phonies and movements that will seduce you and destroy this assembly? That's why. Because I know where it heads. I've seen it too many times. I see it in the Scriptures. I don't want it. And I hope you don't either. And so if we don't maintain a vigilant guard, it will come in the door. And it will spread. Like it always does. Alright, question number two. Uh, you can flip just ahead a page in most of your Bibles. <clears throat> what will be the average apostate Christian's attitude towards teaching and teachers? Now, let me point this out. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. In fact, it's our memory passage for this month. What will be the average apostate Christian's attitude towards teaching and teachers? You know, the devil has little problem with the Bible being taught as long as it's not taught accurately. Uh, perhaps you recall that the devil preached a little mini-sermon on Psalm 91 as his text to the Lord Jesus to convince him to commit suicide by jumping off the temple. <laughs> Look at verse 3. For the time will come. Again, this is futuristic language Paul is employing. Listen, this day is coming. The time will come, most assuredly in the future, when they, okay, again, we have the majority of those naming the name of Christ, they will not endure. Now that word endure, it actually means to stand erect, to stand up against something. And he's saying, rather than stay in the saddle, stand up straight and have an attitude for sound or healthy doctrine, they will not put up with it. Now notice it doesn't say they won't stand for the church or religion or teaching or the Bible. It says they will not stand for healthy, sound teaching. They'll still have Bibles in their buildings. They'll still use the name Jesus. They just have no attitude to hear the Word taught accurately in a way that actually changes them for the glory of God. Is it any shock that a multitude that is lovers of their own selves will not put up with preaching that destroys their precious little self-image? Because that's one of the things preaching does. This is why huge segments of the Scriptures go virtually untouched in most things that call themselves a church. 
This is why expository preaching is so utterly despised. Because if a man commits himself to that faithfully, he's guaranteed to teach the whole counsel of God, and he's guaranteed to step on the toes and thrust a sword through the heart of the hypocrites and apostates that are sitting there. And they don't want it. They don't want it. This is why there is confusion today in the ranks of Christendom about some of the most basic things that my 10-year-old son could answer with confidence. What is marriage? Does God like homosexuality? Should women be ordained as pastors? Is hell fiery and eternal? Is praying to Mary the same thing as praying to God through Jesus Christ? Those questions are not complicated. All the kids in our Sunday school would answer that with definitiveness. But here you've got emerging church leaders with the PhD writing the books. Aren't they so humble? I'm confused about that like a lot of people. Well, then get out of the ministry. You know, you and I never jettison sound, healthy, that's what the word sound means, healthy doctrine, without consequences. So somebody does this. And in place of that, what happens? After their own lust. Remember, they have unbridled lust, right? They're going to get what they want. And now according to that undisciplined, lustful behavior... They're going to pick preachers based on their own fallen, self-centered reasoning. Notice, after their own lust, they're completely dominated by the subjective, by feeling. Oh, you know, that, that new guy, he doesn't make me feel guilty. You know, it's amazing, a striking illustration we're not going to turn to, but this is exactly what happened with Aaron and Israel at the base of Sinai. Here's the people in their carnal, lustful party. And what happens? Well, they need a preacher, right? Because they've got to have religion to solve their conscience. Hey, Aaron, get up and make us some gods. Of course, insinuated in that is if you don't, we'll find one who will. Oh, no, Aaron's got a choice to make, doesn't he? Let's see now, is it better to have everybody involved in compromised worship or just a handful involved in true worship? I hope you know the answer to that. Aaron didn't. So he makes this golden calf and he slaps the name of Jehovah on it. Now we're having a feast tomorrow to the L-O-R-D, Jehovah. Same thing that happens today all the time. A wicked, fallen, mostly lost multitude picks a preacher to tell them what they want to hear and to slap the name Jesus on their blasphemous lifestyle. 
What are, what are they going to do after their own lust? The, the terminology is astounding. Shall they heap to themselves teachers? That, that is exactly what it sounds like. What do you picture? You know, it's like they have these storehouses and they've accumulated piles and piles and piles of these guys. So along with the apostate masses is going to come stacks and stacks of a new kind of teacher. Oh, what kind of teacher? <laughs> Teachers, pastors, and pastorettes that will satisfy the itching ears. Now, itching ears means to desire pleasant and easy things. Keep it positive, no gut-wrenching conviction, no rebuke, no correction, no warning. Let's keep it nice and comfortable, brother. So, Paul is saying, Timothy, the day is coming when most preachers will not be judged based on an objective standard, namely fidelity to the Word of God, come what may, but most so-called preachers will be judged based on their ability to draw a crowd, to keep that crowd, and to give that crowd what they want. And of course, they have to give spiritual-sounding justification for all manner of evil. And when that doesn't work, they claim humility that they just don't know anything. Even if that means satanically twisting the Scriptures or trying to redefine God Himself. That's no surprise. There's the alcohol parties and fornication and swearing from the pulpit. Heard of a Southern Baptist pastor recently in Georgia. Admitted a couple of gay men married these days, you know. John and John, isn't that sweet? He admitted them as members to their Baptist church. He's asked why. Here's what he said. I've been praying about this and I feel God's leading me a different direction. The gospel's not restrictive. Is the gospel restrictive? You don't come God's way, you're doomed. That's pretty restrictive. Yes, it's open to all, but you come God's way, you come as a repentant rebel, or He ain't going to save you, to put it in southern slang, right? I mentioned this, just, just chilling words. I, Brian Houston, one of the megachurch rock stars, he's the, he's the leader of Hillsong over in Australia. He's asked, What's, how do you explain the success of your ministry? He said, well, we're, we're scratching people where they itch. You're right, Brian. It's exactly what you're doing. So instead of faithful shepherds leading the sheep where they need to go, you have weak-kneed apostate cowards following erring sheep off the cliff where they want to go. All right, what happens? Again, the end is predictable. Ears are turned even further away from the truth, and they're turned unto fables. Well, what fable is a myth. In other words, they're going to close out their Christian existence stuck in the fiction section. Oh, it's dangerous to turn your ears from the truth. You know one of the reasons why? Because God will give you what you want. You know, if you want fake Christianity, God will give it to you. 
Especially nowadays, you can find a church to tell you anything. What kind of fables and myths are they turned to? How about myths like love wins? Oh, there's no hell. Everybody will be saved because God's loving. That's a bestseller now. How about uh, we and the Catholics all believe the same thing? You know what that is? That's a fable. Purgatory and hell are the same. Salvation by grace and salvation by works are the same. Uh, the Pope and the pastor are the same. Confessing sins to God and confessing Him to a guy with a backwards collar in a booth, that's the same. Forced celibacy, which is directly responsible as a satanic doctrine for thousands upon thousands of children being molested for the last, I don't know how many decades... And all they keep saying, oh, we're so ashamed what the church has done. You're not the church. How about saying your system is what's produced the evil? It's a fable. How about whoever sincerely believes anything will go to heaven as long as they sincerely mean it? That's a fable. All commands and restrictions are legalism. That's a fable. God accepts anything I do as long as I'm sincere. That's fiction. How about this one? Jesus is a Japanese carpenter with a ponytail and a goatee who will never judge sin. Well, that's in the shack. That's definitely satanic fiction. And I could keep going. All right, now, lastly, what will be the characteristics of these apostate teachers? We can flip ahead to Jude and then we'll, be, then we'll be in 2 Peter, and we will be done. Book of Jude. What, what is the characteristics of these apostate teachers themselves? Jude, verse 4. And I'm going to say more on the first few chapters of Jude, Lord willing, in the next couple weeks. But Jude is telling these believers to earnestly contend for the faith, and then he gives the reason why in verse 4. 4, here's why. There are certain men... <laughs> Okay, there's a certain kind of man that you're to have your eyes open for. And he says, notice this terminology, they're crept in unawares. Now, I find this amazing. There, as apostasy progresses, the huge masses will clamor for apostate ministers to shepherd them on their road to destruction. But apostate teachers apparently aren't content with that. And many of them will worm their way into good churches and colleges and seminaries and try to destroy those. Boy, has that happened in history. Now, you have to ask the question, though, how in the world do they creep in undetected? Well, I'll tell you how. It's not that the man himself is not noticed that he's hiding in a closet somewhere with a camouflage suit on. Here's what that's saying. An apostate usually hides his true colors for as long as it takes. They never show up with a shirt that says apostate staff here to start the revolution. No, an apostate generally says, oh, we believe essentially the same things. We're going basically the same direction. Our areas of agreement are so much more beautiful than our areas of disagreement. You know, actually, 
Our core values haven't changed. Northland's core values didn't change, did they? What a bunch of baloney. That's what pastors were told. When they were pinned down and asked, when compromisers took over, what is going on down there? Our pastor got a letter. Nothing's changed. Our core values are exactly as they've always been. Mm-hmm. Sure they are. So, in other words, the frustrating thing is an apostate's pragmatism, the ends justifies the means, usually makes them hide where they're really going. Do you know there are entire seminars... This is maddening to me. There are entire seminars and courses that deliberately train young men to come into conservative churches and over a period of five or ten years totally change that church into an emerging direction step by step by step. That is disgusting. At least if you're going to go that way, have the guts to say it. Don't come in and pretend like you're all conservative. One of the things that bothered Billy Graham's friends back in the 1900s, you know what they called him? Mr. Facing Both Ways. Because he could sit in a group of fundamentalists and talk the lingo. And then he'd sit down with Fulton Sheen, who prayed to Mary and trusted her for heaven, and talk about how we all believe the same thing, my brother. <laughs> so typically, an apostate's going to hide their true identity until they gain a foothold and it becomes safe to spread their poison. Now, Jude says they're before ordained to this condemnation. In other words, they're not a surprise to God. He's going to pass judgment in due time. But God calls them here ungodly men. No reverential fear of God in their hearts. God exists to give them what they want. And what are they going to do? They're going to turn the grace of our God, that precious doctrine, into lasciviousness. They're going to redefine major Bible doctrines to fit their agenda even changing the definition of grace to make it a license to commit evil. God understands you're human. He loves you no matter what, Bruce and Steve, on your wedding day. God's just so gracious. And he says they deny... <laughs> They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Not blatantly, but subtly, degree by degree, they tear down the doctrines of God the Father and God the Son until they're unrecognizable. And with bad doctrine goes bad life. All right, last passage. Back to 2 Peter. Again, this is Peter's final letter. <clears throat> And, uh, of course, uh, picking up in chapter 2, right after Peter affirms the absolute certainty and the trustworthiness of the written Word of God, even over against the voice of God the Father he heard on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter says, listen to this, this written Word as a light shining in total darkness. Even when you feel different, even when you think you see different, 
This is the sole authority for faith and practice. And any other ideas are bad ideas, period. Now, right after he says that, verse 1, but. But there were false prophets among the people, talking about the Jews. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. Again, futuristic language. He's saying apostate teachers worming their way into Christian ranks is an absolute certainty. Just like Old Testament Israel had false prophets, the New Testament churches will face false teachers. It is certain and it will always be the case. I wonder if you went to one of these National Council of Churches meetings, I would be curious to stand up and ask a question. Sir, it's pretty evident from passages like this that there are false teachers all of the time. I, will, I wonder who are the false teachers today? I'd say one of two things. Because I've seen instances where something like that's asked. You know what they say? Number one will be, I'm not going to say anything negative about my brothers in Christ. In other words, I don't know or I'm too cowardly. Or here's what they'll say. There's a dangerous sect around the ranks of Christendom. They're unloving, legalistic, and mean-spirited. They actually take the Bible literally. They believe Jesus is coming back any moment from the skies. They think God will send people to an eternal fiery hell if they don't trust Christ. And what's more than that, they refuse to join with us. They're nasty, mean-spirited bigots, and they're stopping the party. In fact, we'd have total world unity if it wasn't for them. In other words, you are the problem in their mind. Notice the descriptions. Remember Jude said apostates will creep themselves in undetected, but Peter says uh, here that they will privily or secretly bring in damnable heresies. Peter says, okay, they're going to secretly introduce very destructive divisions which totally cloud the gospel waters and ruin souls. They're going to introduce widespread deceptive, deceptive mixtures of the false and the true. Or they're going to use orthodox words and redefine them to mean something completely different. Again, I read many of those last week. I won't belabor the point. These are the guys that are writing the influential books that are on the rack at the Christian bookstore that occupy the pulpits of the emerging churches. They sit on the editorial board of the extremely blind Christianity today and they give the graduation speeches at the Christian universities. Now they'll bring upon themselves destruction eventually, but before that happens... What else will take place? Peter says, many, many shall follow them. They will attract massive followings. And true Bible teachers will be a remnant. They will be. 
He says many will follow their pernicious ways. That means destructive. Remember the terminology about destructive? Paul calls them in Acts 20, grievous wolves that tear lives apart. They destroy families, churches, and souls, all while being applauded by the religious crowds that keep right on sipping the Kool-Aid. And what's the influence of some of their ministries? <laughs> by a way of whom? A way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Their influence actually turns people against solid Bible teaching and they begin to attack the real Christians. Or that dirty fundamentalist over there standing in the way of our great movement. He's the problem. Uh, friends, examples of this could be multiplied if we had the time, but we don't. The, just the shocking venom that's been spewed out just against churches that teach the Bible. It's amazing. There's a huge contingency among Christendom that is furious that we are not focused on saving the planet or the social gospel or ushering in the kingdom, etc., etc. Verse 3. And through covetousness, look at this terminology, through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. What does that mean? In order to get what they want, they will say whatever they have to say with pseudo-concern and humility in order to take advantage of you. They fleece the sheep to serve themselves. They're in it for the money, the fame, the jet, the whatever other carnal attractions. You know, I, I hate to say it, but pretty much every movement has seen examples of this. You know, I see something like this exposed. I never look at it. I don't rejoice. It's, it's so frustrating to me because I think of the watching world just cackling. Aha, that's what Christianity is. Most of you have heard of the most prominent recent example with Ravi Zacharias. And it came out after his death. He was living a double life for a very long time. He had mistresses and massage parlors across the globe for years. Nude photos on his cell phone, which he strenuously refused to give accountability for. And as he pled tenderly for donations to support his valuable ministry, he was using those same funds to support mistresses in foreign countries who he then required to have relations with him when he showed up. Some of them, he told them, this is God's gift to me, this relationship, for a lifetime of my faithful service to him. He told another lady that, don't ever tell anybody about this, 
Because if you do, you will be guilty of the millions of souls that will be lost when my reputation is damaged. You know what I thought of when I read that? And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. That's exactly what that is. Flip ahead to Jude one more time and we're done. I don't want to end on an entirely negative note. I do want to say this. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying every large ministry is bad. I don't mean that at all. It's, it's quite possible to have large, solid ministries. But increasingly going forward, the reality of apostasy is this. Solid Bible-based Christianity is going to become more and more and more of a remnant. But here's the deal. Nobody has to fall victim to this. Nobody has to. I want to just read the last verses of the book of Jude. In fact, if you look at verse 22, he's talking about rescuing people from destruction and the discernment that takes. He says, some have compassion making a difference. So there's some people you're going to keep from error just with compassion. How about this? Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. I mean, you're rescuing someone from a burning building. Are you doing it calmly, sipping on a latte? <laughs> oh no. This is serious stuff. You're going to get after it. So he's saying there's some people, it's just a compassionate conversation. Others, you need to be very pointed, very direct, and sometimes severe to get them to wake up. But look at the last two verses. Now unto him, speaking of God, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Not only can God deliver you, He delights to do it. To, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Now, the next two weeks, Lord willing, we're really going to get to where we've been aiming this entire time. What are we supposed to do about this? I've said it multiple times in this series, apostasy is guaranteed to affect every single Christian who does not take preventative measures. But what are those preventative measures? And Lord willing, we will spend a couple of weeks answering that question. Let's pray. Father, this is dark and serious stuff, but we thank you for telling us plainly and we thank you for giving us a clear word on uh, what's going on around us. Lord, we know things could get worse and if things continue, uh, they will get worse. And we look forward to the day Jesus returns, but I pray you'd help us to have our mindset on faithfulness, on fidelity to your word, 
on using the giftedness that you've given to each of us as believers in Christ to build up other lives, to save others from destruction, to bring you glory. I pray you'd help us to be well-equipped and diligent soldiers in this battle. Lord, we thank you the day is coming when we lay down the arms, when warnings cease, when faith is traded for sight, when the written word is traded for setting our physical eyes upon the living God and hearing you speak audibly. But for now, we are content to take your word as our sword and as our guidebook and to press on in rain and sunshine, mountaintop and valley, popularity and the lack of popularity. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to persevere in these strange and perplexing times. In Jesus' name, amen.